on our way past 7 o'clock, and it's time for another edition of Ira on Sports, 95.9, the true oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo, and a huge show on tap for you tonight. Great guests, a lot of action. Ira's not in studio, but Ira, um, this is the time of year where if you're a sports fan, it doesn't get any better. I, I mean, NFL's in full swing. Hockey just came back. We'll have basketball in a minute, and Major League Baseball is in the playoffs. If you're a sports fan, this is the most exciting and also the busiest time of the year. It's very busy, and I'm an all-sports type of guy. Like, I like... I love baseball and I like the football. I like all the sports. So this is a tremendous time. And the baseball playoffs are, I mean, I can't think of a more exciting year in the past, I guess, five or six years. I mean, I, I, the ratings on the first wild card games were, were great. I think people are getting into baseball. I think the matchups are compelling. The teams are compelling. And um, so I'm real pumped about baseball. And college football is exciting, too. And, then of course, you have a great year for the NFL. So this is, this is really the prime time for sports right now. Ira, so like we said, it's a very busy time of the year. And you, who attend so many sporting events, it's just hectic for you. And that's why you're not in studio today. I'm not in studio because I'm going to go to the Nationals game. We're taping the show. So we're taping the show at 3 o'clock. So we're going to miss the Braves-Cardinals game. But we're taping the show because at 6.40, which is where the show's going airing, I'll be at the Nationals-Dodgers game, game four at National Stadium. So it's going to be uh, super exciting to be there. I was there last night, and I'm going to go there tonight. Well, Ira, it looked like we were going to see all sweeps, and we'll talk more about, um, talk more about baseball in a little bit. But as of right now, Tampa Bay is leading Houston by a large amount. It's 8-1 to one in the bottom of the fifth. Uh, also, Atlanta and St. Louis just started. That one is still 0-0 going into the bottom of the first. Ira, I've been here at the office, so I haven't seen much. Zach Greinke, we thought we were going to see you know, another marvelous performance from an Astros pitcher. You said it didn't go that way. No, I mean, Greinke, it, it was after the great outings they had from Verlander and Cole, we were waiting for another masterpiece, and he got shelled. Uh, but the Rays are great. I, the Rays, unfortunately for them, I think might be the second or third, I mean, probably like either at worst fourth best team in the playoffs. They're just happened to go against the Astros, who I think are number one, but they're a really, really good team. Uh, and they, uh, so I feel, I feel bad for them that they went against the Astros for this first round. But I'm not, I'm surprised they beat Grinky, but they are a determined team. And, uh, but I was surprised that Grinky didn't pitch well. Yeah, so am I. And I mean, uh, Garrett Cole, 15 Ks yesterday. I thought we were just going to uh, maybe see the end of them. But um, let's get into some baseball so far. And you've noticed something, and it's very true, especially now with um, a lot of openers coming in. Sometimes your biggest strength as, as a manager of a baseball team is just knowing when to get your pitchers in and out. Well, I think what's great about these playoffs is that you're really getting – this is back to baseball on a lot of, in a lot of respects. You're getting the starters – going not 100 pitches. They're going 118, 120 pitches. The idea is when you're bringing relievers in, what Washington is doing is great, is Washington is using their starters. They have the highest Washington Nationals have the highest ERA in the history of baseball of a playoff team for their relievers. And so they're just using their starters as their relievers. Three starters using them as relievers and trying to make it that. And the key is at the end of the game is when these guys are pitching. I mean, we've seen some of the best pitching performances I've ever seen in the playoffs. And just knowing when to take the starters out knowing when to bring relievers in and that's just been the and and, and we've seen with with uh, the cardinals carlos martinez their closer has been terrible for two games and it's probably going to cost the cardinals the chance to to advance but it's this is this is great baseball in terms of watching uh some of the best pitching performances as i said i've ever seen and, and you know uh, arguably the best pitcher of the last decade or so max scherzer didn't look so good uh, in his first matchup um, with the Brewers and the Nationals. This game ended up being one for the ages, though. Yeah, well, the, the, that Brewers-Nationals game, the Brewers being up in the wild card game, we're going back to that from last Tuesday. Up 3-1, the Brewers were, uh, Scherzer didn't pitch well, but in the bottom, and then this is the question, is they, the Brewers used this idea where they had Woodard as their, Woodruff as their starter, the opener, as they say. They use the different pitchers. They bring in Josh Hader, their closer in the eighth inning, uh, and they're up two outs, 3-1. I mean, they are four outs away from advancing, and uh, Taylor for the Nationals gets hit by a pitch. Zimmerman has a, a bloop hit. And then they walk Rendon, and then uh, Soto is uh, uh, just hit an amazing shot to right field, driving in three runs. And the uh, right fielder Grisham uh, makes a key error and lets the winning run in. Uh, 
uh, from that play in terms of it because he overran the ball and otherwise it would have been tied. But just a, and he, that would have been where Yelich would have been playing in right field. But he's a young player and he'll rebound from that. But the Brewers, just a tough loss. I mean, down three, you know, you know, just up three one. They were ready to go make it to the to the next round, and to lose like that is a heartbreaker. It was a heartbreaker, but exciting, exciting to be watching on TV. Um, the other wild card game is going to be the Rays versus the A's, and I gave the Rays an edge in this one. Um, and, and you know, they did prove that uh, they were the, the team that deserved to be there. Well, yeah, we we said that and. Um, I just think Diaz having two home runs, they go up 4-0 with three home runs. I mean, the, the Rays are a type. I mean, it was, it was an exciting crowd in uh, the Oakland. They never get more than, like, what, 10,000 fans a game, and they have 54,000 fans there. And Diaz even said he grew up in Venezuela, and he's used to that type of atmosphere. And uh, now the A's have dropped nine straight winner-take-all games, and they're 1-15 in, in games that they could advance. So, I mean, that's what, you play 162 games. You make the wild card, and then your season's over two days later. So it's pretty tough on them. You're listening to Ira on Sports. It's 95.9, the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Ira, I forgot to mention that one of our biggest guests ever is going to be rolling in here in uh, just about 35 minutes or so. It's legendary coach Bob Stoops. If we aren't familiar with Bob, you want to just give us a quick uh, quick summary? Well, he's just probably, and the current coach is maybe the second behind Saber, the second best in Urban Meyer. Maybe he's in the conversation with Meyer and you know after Meyer and Saber as the best coach. Uh, Eighteen years at Oklahoma, uh, he won the national title in 2000. He played for the national championship at Oklahoma in 2004, 2005, and 2009. In the 18 years he was there, they finished his teams finished uh, in the top 10, 11 of those 18 years, in the top five, seven. His overall record, he had 80% winning percentage uh, against Texas. He was 11 and seven, uh, just tremendous. And then what we're talking about in the, the interview, we, we this is again we taped this interview on Friday. Uh, he has a book called No Excuses Out. And what was interesting about the book is uh, he retired when he was 57 years old, very young. He had one of the best, one of the favorites coming back uh, for the for college football, and he walked away and wasn't pushed out. I mean, he had the same athletic director, the same president. He was just looking for a different challenge, looking to get away from it. Uh, and he left Oklahoma with Lincoln Riley. And we asked him about these questions in the, in the interview because how many times have we seen college football these great like the USC's and the UCLA's and even uh, they and, and, and Florida State had their problems when Bobby got either the transition is smooth and then the older person who was maybe was pushed out like Bobby Bowden or the transition or the transition is terrible. Like what happened at Oklahoma and what happened at Nebraska and, and other schools. And, and you even see with Ohio state when Woody Hayes and, and Michigan's had their problems since Bo Schemlecker uh, retired. I mean, it is, it is again, all these issues in terms of transition here. He turned it over to Lincoln Riley and uh, they haven't, they played for the national champion in the playoffs the last two years. So he certainly knew if, if it was anything was selfless to the, to the school by leaving the team in such a great situation. And, and you know, Ira, I, like you said, we did pre-tape this. I thought that Bob Stoops was going to be kind of a quiet guy, you know, man, a few words, very stoic. You really got some good stuff out of him and asked some great questions. Well, I like, and we're going to, I'll filter in just one of the questions we ask is, the interesting thing about Stoops is in his book, he spends a lot of time talking about his choices of where he was going to coach. He was lucky. His first job was at Iowa, and it's surrounded by the next coach at Wisconsin, of Kansas State, I mean, Hall of Fame coaches, and Hayden Fry. So he had he coached at Iowa with three, uh, when he was like 22 years old, with three Hall of Fame coaches. And then he somehow made the right decisions. He went to Kansas State under Snyder, learned under him. And then there were times when like, he could have gone back to Notre Dame, turned them down. Then he went and chose to go to Florida and coach under Spurrier as the defensive coordinator there. And he was offered head coaching jobs at different schools, decided not to. And he, he spells that in the book, like I was offered this job and that job, all these different jobs he was offered and why he turned it down. And then he, his choice was after three years at Florida, was to go either to Iowa, where he was, where he was a player and an alma mater, or go to Oklahoma when he was in Youngstown. He grew up being fascinated by Oklahoma, loved Oklahoma, and it was just a better situation. He, it, the book is great. He went to Oklahoma, was offered the job at Oklahoma, and then he said, i got to give Iowa the chance. So he flew to Iowa, and they didn't offer him the job on the spot. So he said, that was my decision that made it easier to go to Oklahoma uh, to be the coach there. So he talked about that. And, and then at Oklahoma, when the uh, Florida job opened three years later, and he had won the national title, why he didn't go back to Florida and take that job when Spurrier uh, retired. Uh, and over the years, what, what different jobs, and head coach 
coaching jobs in the NFL, and the Browns had offered him the job. So it was interesting why he stayed in college, didn't go to the pros. Just a great interview. His answers are excellent, and I'm, you know, fantastic. You know, I'm excited that he was on our show. Yeah, about 7:40. You can hear that right on the True Oldies channel. Going to have Bob Stoops here on Ira and Sports. Sorry to get so sidetracked. Let's go back to baseball, Ira. Dodgers Nationals. Uh, you know, Dodgers are your pick to, to go all the way uh, in the NL. And so far, they're doing pretty good. They're up 2-1. to one. You'll be at that game tonight, which starts at about three hours uh, from the taping time. How do we get to this 2-1? to one? Um, This is what happened in the, in the, in the, in the uh, because you, because, the, because you were using Scherzer and then Strasburg had to come in to relieve three innings. That's how the Nationals did it in the wild card game that they weren't able to start. They had to start Patrick Corbin, their other great starter, but the third best of their starters. So they had to start him against the Dodgers in the first game. And Dodgers, that's the, that's the, I love how baseball is set up. If you don't win your division, you're a wild card. And if you're a wild card, you have to play a game, and then you can't use your best pitchers in the, in the beginning games. That, that gave the Dodgers an advantage. Walker Bueller pitched a, a masterpiece, six innings, one hit. They only let him pitch 100 innings, 100 pitches, and he had eight strikeouts. But it was a, and then, and Corbin pitched good for the Nationals, but just not enough to hold on. And uh, it was just, and, and, and the Dodgers had a nice win. And then in game two, though, Strasburg, I mean, I had friends who were at that game, and they, they've never seen a pitcher pitch like he had a no hitter through fifth at five innings. In the sixth, he was, uh, he, he was up 3 uh, 1. The Dodgers uh, did rally uh, and actually got a home, one home run, but then they brought Scherzer in relief. So Strasburg relieved for, for uh, Scherzer, relieved, uh, Strasburg relieved for Scherzer, and then Scherzer relieved for Strasburg. In the, in the eighth inning, he came in, had three strikeouts, and then they were able to win in the ninth. Uh, I mean, and hold on and save it the game of the ninth. But then last night, uh, you know, the Dodgers went down. I was I, I went to that game, so I was. We'll tell a little bit of this. I was at the Steeler Raven game, so it was one. It was at one o'clock. Game's over. It goes into overtime. So now that's at four thirty. I drive four hours, and I'm deciding, do I want to go with my girlfriend? And we decided, let's go to the Nationals game. And uh, we got there by the fourth inning. And by that time, that they were the Nationals were up two one. Dodgers are getting nervous. I mean, here they have this great record, everything. They're down two one, uh, and they and uh, and Anibal Sanchez was was pitching great for them. Uh, but they took him out and they brought in uh, Corbin. Uh, they're they're you know again using the starters to relievers, and uh, he was he pitched terrible. He gave up in that one in the sixth inning. He gave up seven runs. And uh, and they were able to the Dodgers were able just to blow out that entire game. It was interesting. They the Dodgers are so deep. They had David Freeze, Chris Taylor, and Kiki Hernandez who are right hand hitters. And uh, and so when Corbin came in, he's lefty. They were able to put those guys in the game, and they all got doubles and singles. And it was just a and besides, then Turner hit a three run home run. So they went from depping out two one, uh, scoring seven in that inning to go up eight two. Um, this game three, which you were at, had you been to Nationals Park before? I've been to pretty much every baseball stadium on the East Coast except for this one. So I'd love to hear about it if uh, if this was your first time. Well, what was your I've take? I've never gone. I've been at Nationals before, but I it, this is the first time I've ever gone to a, a playoff game and a full game on the same day. So that was pretty exciting, guys. But it was when you show up at a game in the fourth inning, it's like we were at a park right next to the stadium, and it was so loud. I mean, it wasn't like when you're walking and it was quiet. I mean, it was the, the, the Nationals were leading, and it was going crazy. You could, we were blocking two blocks away, and like you felt like you were in the stadium. Um, you walk through. There's, of course, no lines of security. You go in, and they were all with the, the – we went from the Steeler game with the gold, you know, terrible towels everyone's waving, and then to the Nationals game where everyone was waving the red towels, uh, sat right behind the, the Dodger dugout, and it was – the, the atmosphere was great. The bunting is up, which they put all around for playoff games. The, the stadium was packed. Uh, and the national fans were, I mean, it's, uh, this, this team, I mean, this city loves this team. And uh, they were out in force for the game. And I like the stadium a lot. I mean, there's a great mix of the club sections. And then they have the, uh, you know, the outfield at the scoreboard. It's, it's, just, it's a really good, it's a very intimate feel. And you can see they're doing so much construction. It was built in the Navy Yard area. That was one of the worst areas of the city. But now it's just being developed. And uh, there's going to be bars and restaurants and all these nice amenities around the stadium. So it was very exciting to be there. Uh, but unfortunately for the Nationals, there was a chance that they go 2-1 and then they go down 2-1. Uh, let's uh, let's shift gears here. Go to Braves and Cardinals. Um, Ira, I think that the Braves are a much better team than the Cardinals, but the Cardinals took Game One, and now the Braves have rallied to uh, take two in a row. Right. I mean, it was the Braves were up. 
that game in game one, the Braves were up three one in the seventh inning, and then the whole Ronald Acuna Jr. is the star of the Braves, and he's this young superstar player. But he's causing a lot of problems. I mean, during the regular season, he was benched because he did run out of run out of run out of singles. So he hits a, a double, but he only looks at it and then only goes to first base. Well. In this game, he did the same thing, and he cost them a run. And then the cards went back, and they scored six runs uh, and to take a lead and were able to hold on and, uh, and win the game 7-6, uh, even though Carlos Martinez, their closer, did terrible at the end. Well, but what's happening is that as much as everybody's mad at Ronald Cunha Jr., he seems to be getting under Carlos Martinez's skin, and it's working because Martinez pitched terrible. I mean, they're jawing at each other from the dugout. Now, it's a lot easier for Acuna to be hitting and then whatever. When Martinez is pitching and he's screaming, and you saw in the last game, um, uh, Molina, the catcher for the Cardinals, is trying to calm Martinez down because he keeps jawing with Acuna from the dugout. So as much as everyone's criticizing Ronald Acuna for not running it out, for being lazy, he has gotten under the skin of Carlos Martinez. Um, l- l- want to keep it in that series, and we'll talk a little bit more about um, you know what what's been going on here because this was uh, the Braves lineup looks really potent, and like you said, St. Louis is having real issues in the bullpen. So I- I'm not surprised at the two to one result. I thought it might be over already. Well, the Braves ended up three nothing in the win game too, and then last night Wainwright. I mean, this is just devastating for the Cardinals. Because you have a pitcher, Wayne Wright, 38 years old, he's one of your best pitchers ever. He comes in there and pitches 120 innings. He makes it to the bottom of the eighth inning, zero runs, four hits, leaves with the bases loaded. Andrew, Mar- Andrew Miller comes in, remember him from when he, when he pitched for the, for, in, uh, for the Indians a couple of years ago and, and made it to the World Series mm-hmm. and just pitching every time. He comes in, gets it out. Well, they take Andrew Miller out. They put their closer, Martinez, in. Total disaster. And, uh, again, there was a situation and then where, uh, where, where they were able, where Dobby Swampson drove the three runs in in the bottom of the ninth, uh, top of the ninth inning, and actually, and then and took that lead from, uh, to win. So now the Braves are up 2-1. They're playing. It'll be playing this afternoon. But uh, it was a mess. I mean, again, the Cardinals, I think these, I think the Cardinals and Braves of all the teams in the playoffs are probably two of the weakest of the teams. I mean, they're all good teams, but um, that was a tough, tough loss for the Cardinals. And especially when you have a guy like Wainwright who pitched, I was watching the game, I was driving, and it was uh, just a tremendous, a tremendous performance. 120 pitches, zero runs, and uh, just four hits, and he loses the game. We well, didn't lose the game, but he didn't get the win. You do have to be very um, excited if you're an Atlanta Braves fan, though, with all the, you know, th- this team should have been two or three years away from being able to contend, but with guys like Ozzie Albies and Ronald Acuna coming along so fast, they're. Uh, their lineup is pretty much as good as anybody in baseball. It's the pitching that's trailing behind, but you, you got to be encouraged if you're a Braves fan that the future uh, is getting a lot brighter from here. Um, speaking of quick rebounds, my New York Yankees. Didn't think this rebuild was going to go this fast, Ira, and I got to tell you, it was glued to my TV on both Friday and Saturday night, and Yankees got the results both games. Well, look, the two highest home run hitting teams of all time were this year's Yankees team and this year's Minnesota Twins team, yeah. 309 to 308 um, in terms of home runs. The Yankees all year have been putting people in, bringing people from the minors. Everyone's been hurt. Everyone's been injured. They're all healthy now. And this, I'm going to just go through this lineup real fast. DJ LeMayu, 26 home runs. He's their first hitter. 26 home runs, 327 average, second in batting. Aaron Judge has 27, he's their second hitter, 27 home runs in 100 games. So he missed 60 games. Of course, he's 50 home runs. He's one of the best home run hitters in baseball. He's your second hitter. Your third hitter is your center fielder. Usually your center fielder, maybe he's not going to be that, you know, unless they're Mike Trout, not a lot of home runs. He had 28 home runs for the Yankees this year. So then who's your fourth hitter? Who's your cleanup hitter? Uh, and Carcione. 34 home runs and only 109 games. And here's a guy who's been averaging like almost 40 home runs in the last seven years. Okay. So who's your fifth hitter? Okay, it might be you know maybe the lineup starts falling off on most teams in the history of baseball. You have Stanton who had 38 home runs last year, 59 the year before, and uh, he's only played in four games this year. But of course, one of the most dangerous home run hitters in baseball. All right, then you get to the sixth hitter, your second baseman. Most teams' second baseman really not a home run hitter. He's Labor Torres, 22 years old, 38 home runs this year. Okay, now you've got the seventh hitter is Gabby Sanchez. Usually your catchers, they're just defensive catchers, not really hitting our runs. He had 34 home runs in only 107 games. He missed another 60 games. Okay, shortstop, usually their weakest position, D.G. Gregorius. He's their eighth hitter, 
16 home runs in only 82 games. He had 27 home runs last year. And your third baseman is Gio Ursula, 21 home runs, 314 average. I mean, literally one through nine, every one of them could be a cleanup hitter almost any other team in baseball. This lineup is just they're devastating, and that's why they really just need five innings from the pitcher, whether you get it from uh, Paxton uh, or Tanaka coming out, and then you're able to, and then they're just able to just, uh, I mean, bludgeon 10-4 game one, 8-2 in game two, uh, just a tremendous performance by the Yankees, and I, I think Minnesota's a very good team. They have great hitters, but if you just, I mean, the Yankees just, I mean, this question, if they go against the Astros, can this fearsome just lineup. I mean, this is Babe Ruth, Lou Gehrig type of lineup. Can they, what would they would do to great pitching? And it comes, you know, without the great pitching, but they do have the closers. They have Chapman, they have the relievers. Uh, but I'm just so impressed that now they're all healthy and they're all pounding home runs. You know, Ira, it's come to the point now where can DJ LeMahieu get some MVP votes? We know that Mike Trout's the best player in baseball. The Angels never make the playoffs. I know he's the best. They're never there. This guy, granted that the entire lineup is stacked, but the season that DJ LeMahieu had, if he doesn't get a couple of MVP votes, it's an absolute travesty. Right. I mean, I definitely think he should get something. And, and it's just, it's going to be exciting when you see the Yankees and see how he, as a leadoff hitter, I mean, he's not traditional. Like the Yankees really aren't looking to steal bases. They're not looking to make out. Yeah. They're looking to hit home <laughs> runs and hit doubles and hit triples and just to have seven, eight, eight run innings. And the Yankees are a type of team. They're down ten nothing in a game. I would not turn it off. I mean, if there's ever a team that could score like, be down like ten runs and still come back, it's the Yankees. This is the most powerful lineup I've ever seen in all my years of watching baseball. You know, and it's funny. You actually said it on this show. I think two weeks ago. Like he's even seven runs. Like you, you can't turn the game off yet. They were down two nothing in both games uh, of this series and ended up just uh, absolutely exploding from there. Houston is, you know, we talked about it earlier. They've been giving the business to the Rays, which I, I, you know, I think we all saw coming right now. They're on. It's eight to three because the show is pre-taped and Houston's getting back into this one a little bit because the Rays had a big lead. But how do we get, uh, how do we get here, I? Well, Verlander, seven innings in game one. A tremendous performance at 162 with Altivius home run. Garrett Cole in game two, uh, he was in the first six and two thirds. He had 13 strikeouts, no walks, no pitchers ever done that in the playoffs. He made it to the bottom eight with 118 pitches, the most he ever had, 15 strikeouts, the third most ever in the history of the game, uh, unhittable. And, I, and then they took him out of the game. They bring Azuna, their closer. And this is one of the problems with these playoffs. And you saw with the Dodgers a couple years ago with Ganton. The closers are used to pitching one inning. When you bring someone into the eighth inning and then you make them come back and they rest, they come back in for the ninth. That's when they have trouble. He came back in the ninth, struggled. But I give credit to uh, the Astros manager because they were able to bring Harrison to get uh, after you know, those men on first and second uh, with a chance to lose the game. And he brought in uh, Harris to relieve and to strike out the next two batters. And that was smart. You've got to know, look, you can't worry about feelings. If the closer is not doing it, you've got to take him out of the game. This is not a regular season. Every game is just so crucial. So I give them credit for that, and that was a smart move on their part to, to preserve that win for Cole. You're listening to Iron Sports. It's the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. Uh, we got Bob Stoops coming up in just about 15 minutes or so. Going to be a great interview with him. Also, Ira, he's the new GM and coach of the Dallas franchise in the XFL. So we, uh, Ira picks his brain about that as well. Stick around. You're going to want to hear this. Ira, you were at Penn State. And I was watching you, uh, watching this game out of the corner of my eye. And this is a, a convincing win for you guys. You got to beat these teams, but you guys still look really good. Well, Penn State now just got to the top 10. I mean, they're hanging around. There's one of those teams that has a chance. I mean, they jumped up 28 nothing on Purdue and just sort of coasted the rest of the way. Purdue is interesting. Their coach, Jeff Brom, got extensions. He makes $5 million a year. He's one of the highest paid coaches in, in, in football. Uh, they had a lot of excitement coming in. They beat, remember, they beat Ohio State last year. Uh, and uh, they had Syndergaard, who's this very good quarterback, and Rondell Moore, their wide receiver, both got hurt on the same play in the same game last week. So they were they were devastated in coming coming in the game. Penn State had ten sacks; it was the most they've had in like twenty some years. Uh, just a, and KJ Hamler, just an amazing. I've talked about all the time. Uh, no one talks about him nationally, but he was running routes, he was blocking, he was taking uh, halfback passes in terms of doing just doing everything on the field. Uh, 
tremendous performance. Uh, Shaka Tony for Penn State on defense and uh, Gross Matos on defense. Their line was tremendous. And Sean Clifford played very well in the first half. I uh, ended that game, it was like 11 for 15 for 204 yards. I didn't do much in the second half. It was interesting. After that, he said, the first thing I did was they have a, a team psychologist. And he goes, I met with the team psychologist for half an hour. He goes, I thought I lost my focus in the second half. And it just shows you where football is. I mean, he's doing the interviews. He's saying, look, I have to be mentally right. And, and, and when you look at a team like Penn State, and we talked about this before, how many staff members these teams have? Like 30 or 40 from nutritionists to a whole strength training staff and to team psychologists and everything and people breaking all the computers. It is it is amazing when you watch a college football game and see how many different coaches are on the sideline. It, no, it is crazy, and obviously things have changed a lot, you know, over the course of the last um, twenty or thirty years. Um, so, what'd you do after that game? Well, I went down to Champs downtown, and my girlfriend and I went and watched. Uh, this is a bar that Jonas Brothers is making famous. For some reason, Jonas Brothers' manager is a big fan. We went to Penn State, so he's got them to be. be uh, fans of it. So now, after some games, if the Jonas Brothers happen to show up, they actually go there and like you know play a song or two. So it's becoming like it's in place. And it was it was packed full of people. And we watched the Auburn Florida game there. Uh, and that game was, I mean, again, five. Both teams were five and zero oh, coming to this game. Really, what's going to happen? And I got to give Cal Trask Florida credit. I mean, he, he got hit. It was almost like almost a Joe Thyssen type injury. I thought he's gone. It looks like he broke his leg. Emory Jones comes in, leads them to a field goal, uh, but then Trask comes back in the game. And I think that motivated Florida to hang in there. I mean, it, it was when Auburn finally got it tight, the 17-13, and then Perrine had uh, the run. He had an 88-yard touchdown run for Florida to, to make them go up 24-13. Uh, that was the longest run in, in Florida since Emmett Smith in 1988. And he's from, like, right outside Auburn, and they didn't recruit him. So it was nice to him to get that run. But what a big win for Florida. Uh, you know, we saw them start up slow at the beginning of the year, but now they're in terms of uh, they look much better. And they, but you know, they're player eleven or fourteen point underdogs to uh, LSU tomorrow next, on Saturday night. But that'll be you know the key game for their season. And, and Auburn struggled. I mean, Bo Nix is their freshman quarterback. He's eleven for twenty-seven, one hundred forty-five yards, three touchdowns, three interceptions. Uh, didn't play well, uh, but it was a, a big win for Florida at home. Ira, and, you know, one more thing in this game. I may be a sucker for throwback jerseys, but how cool were those uh, Florida Gators throwbacks? Well, their uniforms are great, and Penn State also wore throwback jerseys. Uh, and with the numbers on them and the leggings. And it, no, I think these throwbacks look great. I mean, these teams spend a fortune trying to update their uniforms, and I think everyone's saying, besides, like, the Steelers' bumblebee uniforms, a lot of these throwback jerseys look much better than what they're playing in right now. Whoa, 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 you don't like the Steelers bumblebees? They <laughs> uh, tired of them. They're not ever going to use them again. <laughs> Probably a good, uh, good choice. Um, another week, another uh, University of Tennessee uh, loss, and this one comes at the hands of a really good team. Wow, Georgia, it was close. You know, Tennessee hung in there 14-13 and then blew the game out 43-14. Tennessee's off to a, a one-and-four start. It's just the worst start since 1988. Uh, they couldn't even fill the stadium against Georgia. I mean, the we're talking about transitions with Bob Stoops, who's coming up next. I mean, Tennessee gets rid of Phil Fulmer, um, a horrendous breakup who, who was, you know, led them for all these titles, you know, won them for the national championship and a great coach. Then they continue to, you know, failing at what coaches they bring Fulmer back as the athletic director. And this is a, this exact problem is what Oklahoma's avoiding. Oklahoma did not have the fall off when they lost their top coach. And uh, Stoops is, we asked him about the interview. Stoops is involved with Lincoln Riley. They're friends. They talk. He goes into um, quarterback meetings and works with them. And Tennessee is a perfect example of they pushed a coach out. They thought they'd get someone better. And their program has now just gone to the disaster. And you know what's funny? They they still get recruits. There's a lot of good athletes in Tennessee and, and you know, the surrounding, um, you know, southern states. They get players. I just don't know why they've been uh, so pitiful for the last decade or so. Um, Ira, <clears throat> article on ESPN came out yesterday stating, actually came out before the game, um, stating that Ohio State should really be the number one team in the country. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but they had a nice win uh, on Saturday. Well, they should definitely, I mean, look, <laughs> whether I... We'll see when, hopefully, for my sake, Penn State beats them. We'll see what happens. But they look great because they have Dobbins at running back, who is 
He had a 67-yard run. He had 170 yards, two touchdowns, and fields. They seem to be the team with a great running back and a great quarterback. Uh, Michigan State's defense was tremendous, and Ohio State, Ohio State put 529 yards against them. Uh, just a tremendous performance by Ohio State uh, and gearing up in terms of now they, have, they play Wisconsin, they play Penn State, so at home. And that's the advantage that I think people are thinking Ohio State has the advantage because they have these two big games they have at home and, and uh, see what happens. Uh, LSU had a nice win over Utah State. Yeah, that was in it. LSU, Oklahoma, and Wisconsin all blew out their teams. They, they, by 40 points, LSU used the state, Oklahoma over Kansas, Wisconsin over, over Kent State. Uh, these are teams that are definitely playing in the, in the title, and they're, you know, they're doing what they have to do. They're not getting in close games. They're not getting injuries. They're blowing out. Even Notre Dame, Bowling Green, 52 nothing. As we talked about this before, each week there's going to be a couple that's made an upset, and then a close game that wasn't a close game, which you really didn't get this week. And then there's also going to be those games where it's just going to be a great game between two good teams. I mean, the Texas-West uh, Virginia game was exciting because West Virginia beat them last year at Texas and caused a lot of controversy by going the upside-down horns, and, and Texas is upset, and Texas goes into West Virginia. Great atmosphere for that game. I've been to West Virginia for games before, and uh, won 42-31. And then the, the Michigan-Iowa game, where Michigan beat Iowa 10-3. Uh, well, Iowa was undefeated going into the game. Michigan sort of, it was, it was a game that they had to win, uh, but we'll see in terms of the rest of the year. And Michigan's offense, they cannot. Their defense played great. I mean, they held Iowa to one-yard rushing on 30 attempts. But still, Michigan's offense still has not got going yet. Um, real, before we wrap up college football, a lot of people down here in South Florida are starting to call for Manny Diaz's head. Um, th- this is You're supposed to beat teams like Virginia Tech. It's a division matchup, a conference matchup. And Miami got beat down pretty bad. Worse than the score reflects. Right. I mean, they were down 28 nothing. They came back, and uh, but they were 14-point favorites in the game. West Virginia Tech has lost six out of seven games. And uh, so to lose 42-35, to fall to 2-3, and three, bad loss for them. And before we leave, I just one last game. Uh, Baylor at K-State. Baylor's now 5-0. and oh. We had Jeff Nixon, their offensive coordinator, in our show a few months ago. Uh, predicted big, good things for Baylor. I mean, Baylor had all the problems with the scandals, uh, and Matt Roll has done an amazing job at Baylor. And uh, Nixon, I, I think Nixon, after this year, is going to definitely be on the short list for some major college coaching jobs. What, uh, what are you looking forward to this week in college? This is actually a really good week. Um, you have UVA at Miami on Friday night, uh, but on Saturday, the early games, Oklahoma, Texas at the Cotton Bowl, great game. Uh, and then you're going to have Bama at Texas A&M. It's going to be a little tough. I mean, Bama's favorite in that game by, by like 20 points, but still it should be exciting. Florida State's at Clemson. Uh, Michigan State's at Wisconsin at 3.30. Wisconsin's favorite by 10.5. And, and then at night, USC, Notre Dame. Notre Dame's favorite by 11. Penn State, Iowa, big game. Penn State is now going to be on primetime on ABC two day weeks in a row. They're at 7.30 this week, and they're going to be at 7.30 against Michigan the following week. They're favored by three and a half. Uh, that should be a great game at Iowa. And then the big game is Florida at LSU. Florida's, I mean, LSU's favored by 14 points, but Florida's looking good. If Trask comes in, motivates them. I mean, this is, this is a huge game for Florida to go to, to keep their undefeated season alive. You're listening to Iron Sports. It's the True Oldies channel. I'm Mike Balsamo. About seven or eight minutes, legendary coach Bob Stoops is going to join us here on Iron Sports. All right, NFL action, Ira. You were at the Steelers and Ravens game. Like you said earlier, this one went to OT. It seems to me that the league is starting to figure out Lamar Jackson here just a little bit. And you guys hung in there for a while, and especially with um, you know Mason Rudolph going out. <clears throat> well, it was <laughs> Steelers. Started out terrible. I mean, they give up a they give up a field goal. Then they go they try a, they go wildcat at their own five yard line and try a halfback pass with for Jamal Samuels through for intercepted to go down ten nothing. But they hung in that game and uh, uh, that was and I don't think they figured out Jackson because Jackson's able to still run the ball well. I mean, he got criticized, but they, they ended up, they won the game. I mean, the key of the, 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 the discussion was when Mason Rudolph for the Steelers, who actually was playing pretty well and looking good out there, scrambles, got hit by Earl Thomas, totally knocked out of him, on concussion, on the ground. I mean, the moment he went down there, they were, the second minute, they were calling for the trainers to come over. Uh, fortunately, he had a concussion. He was able to, to, to get up and 
sort of walk off the field. The issue about there was a cart, the cart broke down to try to take him off the field. And the Steelers now are the third string quarterback, Delvin Hodges, comes in the game. After Rudolph got hurt, he drove them down for a touchdown to make it 2017. Uh, but the Ravens, they, they had like these eight minute drives, goes down there and makes it 2020. Uh, but the Steelers back and forth and the Steelers. And then the interesting thing about it was that the Steelers were up 23 20. Uh, and there was a bad uh, roughing the passer penalty. It seemed like it was just a tackle on, on Jackson, and they called roughing the passer to keep a drive alive, and they went down tied at 23-23. And then Tomlin in overtime decides the rule in overtime is if you get the ball, uh, you score a touchdown, it's over. Well, usually everybody takes the ball. I think it's the first time ever that they decided because they were not they were not getting the they were not doing anything really well uh, in terms of kicking and receiving from Justin Tucker. He was kicking so well that the Steelers were getting pinned. They were like starting from the 15 yard line every time, and the Steelers defense was playing so well they decided to kick off to Baltimore, and it worked. I mean, Tomlin got criticized after the game, but it worked because the Ravens went three and out, and the Steelers got the ball back, and all they had to do was kick a field goal, and they would have won the game. And they anyway, Juju Smith Schuster fumbled the ball, Baltimore gets the ball, kicks us the field goal, and the Steelers are one and four, and uh, does not look like a good year. But I, Tomlin got criticized. He was getting criticized at the end of the game, but it, first of all, I understand his reasoning, and it worked. <laughs> so, But unfortunately, they Juju fumbles the ball, which he did against New Orleans. So the second time in a key situation in overtime that uh, Juju Smith-Schuster has, has fumbled the, the ball uh, in a game. So, I mean, everyone loves him. He's a great player, but two bad fumbles in back-to-back years. Ira, going back to Thursday night, I've learned a lesson. Stop betting against Russell Wilson. I, I thought this was going to be a bounce-back statement game for the Rams. I, I do think they're a more talented team. They just got shellacked by Tampa Bay. I'm thinking, all right, the Rams are going to come out here and give their division rival uh, you know, a run for their money here. And it was a good game. But Russell Wilson is just so good. That throw to Tyler Lockett was arguably the best touchdown I've seen in years. Russell, well, the coach, Pete Carroll said it's the best game he ever played. He had 368 yards, four touchdowns. They're getting Chris Carson now is running well. Uh, the Seattle's 4-1. and I saw them when they played the Steelers. They looked great. Uh, you know, the Rams had a chance to win the game. They went down. Yeah. They had two chances. They At first, they were they were through an interception with two minutes, seven seconds to go. Seattle couldn't get the first down. They get the ball back at the seven-yard line with a minute 38. They drive down there, kicking a 44-yard field goal from Zerline, who is him against the Saints, is one of the best kickers in the league, misses a 44-yard field goal. So that, the game that could go either way. But uh, a good win for Seattle and being 4-1, the NFC is wide open. And they seem that Seattle and, and uh, the Cowboys and the Packers there and, and the Saints are those teams that are battling for the NFC to see who can probably play the Patriots in the Super Bowl. Ira, it started off a little slow. And Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, and the Patriots let the Redskins hang around. And then they just became the Patriots and absolutely crushed them. And as a result, uh, Jay Gruden, the Redskins coach, was fired today. Yeah, well, Bray, this, I'm telling you, I, this, I watched first take ESPN, Max Hellman. This idea that Tom Brady is a game manager is ridiculous. He is tremendous. I watched this game, the highlights of the whole game, and they, on the, I read some of the videos. He, his pass, he's pinpoint passes. I mean, it drops to Edelman. I mean, he passed for 340 yards, uh, three touchdowns. He is, uh, a great performer. I mean, no, they're fight. Look, you can keep making excuses. Well, New England hasn't played well, and New England's defense is the best it's ever been with five sacks in a row, whatever. They still have Brady's the best, by far, the best quarterback in football right now. I mean, I think I would take him over Patrick Mahomes. He knows how to win these games. And he also knows how, when he has to have a shootout, win those shootouts. He's the best quarterback of all time, the best quarterback now. They're 5-0, and and they're rolling. Ira, it was... Sunday night football, and I thought it'd be closer than this. Uh, Dallas lost to Green Bay. They played two good teams now, and they lost to both of them. It was 34-24, but really, I don't think that score did it justice. Uh, 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 Green Bay killed them. Well, it's sort of like it's similar to uh, the 28 nothing uh, Miami-Virginia Tech game where, uh, where, where Green Bay goes up 28 nothing on them, and Dallas battles back, but I mean – they still, they were, it was, they were never in the game. And Prescott threw for 463 yards, the two touchdowns. But the three interceptions hurt them. You can't fall. You can't turn the ball over as much as they did. You can't fall behind. Uh, a bad loss for the Cowboys. It was a huge game in Dallas. Uh, just a, you know, and I'm not going to say the season's over for Dallas. They're quite like everyone sort of jumps and the prisoner of the moment. But Green Bay looked good in this game. I mean, this is, you know, they, they looked like this is, I think that Aaron Rodgers is getting very comfortable with Matt LaFleur. Aaron Jones is finally healthy and running well at 90 carries for 170 yards and four touchdowns. And Green Bay's defense 
did just enough to win the game. So, no, good one for, for Green Bay in this game. It was uh, probably not a game that many people picked, but the Colts and Jacoby Brissett upset the Kansas City Chiefs. Well, I, I guess, you know, Patrick Mahomes does not walk on water. I mean, it's, I mean, look, he's had a, a tremendous start in his career, but and you know, people are anointing him as so much better than Brady. Uh, he was sacked four times. Uh, the Colts controlled the time of possession. Uh, it just, he did not have the game. I mean, the Colts played a great game. Their defense is great. You're seeing these teams like the Bears, the Vikings, the Colts, these teams with these really good defenses. They can come up, and if they have the right game plan, they can really shut down some of these. And I was surprised. Remember, I said, oh, Mahomes will figure out a way to win. We just figured out a way to win at this game. And they had fourth and one. They had a chance to, 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 uh, to go down and score a touchdown to win the game. They were stopped. Colts went down there and, and kicked a field goal. Adam Vittari, for, you know, he was about to retire four weeks ago uh, for the Colts, but he comes in and has four field goals, but a big win. I mean, this was, game was at Kansas City. So everyone thought, that, you know, Kansas City, unbeatable, unstoppable, unwhatever. Well, they were beat, and they were stopped at home. We always talk about how the NFC is wide open. It's pretty much up for who's going to take the reins as the team to beat in the NFC. We talked about Green Bay earlier. They're definitely in the conversation now with the win over Dallas. But I think it's time for New Orleans to start getting a little more credit than they are. Drew Brees is out. Teddy Bridgewater's come in, looked fine, and that defense looks great in New Orleans. Well, the Tampa Bay, with the big win they had over the Rams last week, comes, you know, you're expecting sort of a letdown. They played well. But New Orleans, people said, oh, they'll, they'll be 500 without them. They keep winning games. They're 4-1. and one. Bridgewater looked very good. Uh, again, we talk about Antonio Brown all the time. All the press. Michael Thomas is a better wide receiver than Antonio Brown. He had 11 catches for 182 yards, two touchdowns. He doesn't talk. He doesn't tweet. He doesn't do all the things that Antonio Brown has. But if you watch how he plays, you watch his hands, He's better. I mean, that's what Antonio Brown should hope to be as good as Michael Thomas is. A great wide receiver, and Alvin Kamara is tremendous. I mean, when Breeze comes back, that's why a lot of people, including me, are saying, I think this New Orleans, their defense stays playing well. I mean, all we, we kept talking years after years. New Orleans has such great offense, but a bad defense. Now they have a very good defense. When Breeze comes back, their offense is going to be unstoppable. And, uh, and if they can get that home field advantage at New Orleans uh, this year, I don't think they're going to look last year they have to, to the Rams, but I don't think they're going to lose this year. But a big win for New Orleans and every win without Breeze. And, and they're showing pictures. Breeze could be back sooner than people expect. Ira, so we talked about on this show in week two, the Patriots, uh, for fantasy purposes, scored 53 points against the uh, Jet. I mean, against the Dolphins. And it was the most I'd ever seen. And then yesterday, Philly puts up 50 fantasy points in just an absolute crushing of the Jets. Well, yeah. <laughs> the, the Jets, the Philly, the Philly's defense is the first time in the history of the NFL for a team to have 10 sacks and two touchdowns in a game. That's pretty bad. I mean, the, the, I feel bad. I mean, Le'Veon Bell, I mean, as much as the Steelers situation is bad, it's, he's trying, he's out there, he's playing, but Luke Paul, when since they lost Sam Darnell, everything has gone off the rails for the Jets. And, and uh, Adam Gaze, we saw him in Miami in terms of being up close. I mean, he's really not, this team is not playing well. The Jets have, I, I guess the Giants' expectations were very low. And they're playing a little bit better than what their expectations were. They like their quarterback. The Jets' expectations were higher, and they are now a disaster. That was a, a terrible loss, and it seems like now you play the Dolphins or Jets every week, you count it up as a win. I mean, whoever the Jets and Dolphins upset is going to be it's going to be a terrible upset for that team. Hey, don't forget the Bengals on that uh, losing for two a bandwagon as well. Um, uh, real quick, Raiders and Bears. I think if you're a Bears fan, you got to be a little upset with this one. The defense should have looked better against the Raiders. Well, the Raiders are riding the ship. <laughs> I mean, that was just say. Derek Carr uh, had no interceptions. Josh Jacobs, again, I was talking about Montgomery and Jacobs. He's really looking like this running back that no one's talking about from Alabama. 123 yards rushing, uh, and they played in England. It was in, and, uh, but it was the Raiders almost blew a 17-point lead in the game that uh, came down with a 97-yard drive. The Bears' defense is tremendous. Khalil Mack is great. This was his, uh, you know, the Raiders, the Raiders traded him to the Bears, so it was sort of like the revenge-type game. But it just shows you your defense can be great and your offense can be great, but if the other team has the matchup, it was like, you know, people expected the Raiders to shut their, uh, the Bears to shut the Raiders out, and they did not. And, uh, and Gruden might get this team going. I mean, they are, could be a sneaky wild-card team if they somehow hang in there. Ira, um, before we wrap uh, up yesterday's games, 
You know, I, t- I told you, and I'm sure you're the same way. Around uh, 1230, your phone starts going nuts and everyone's just trading ideas. What's the bet for today? Who's our suicide pick? So when I, all this, Mike, who are you taking this week in suicide? I said, take the Minnesota Vikings. People are down on them. They're playing a jet giant team. It's playing over their heads. And I was absolutely right in this one. Kirk Cousins and the Vikings seem to be riding the ship. Their defense looks good. And the Giants are who we thought they were. <laughs> well, you heard all week. I mean, you thought Cousins and Thielen, they were going to be this celebrity divorce. And they had Cousins said that I felt that, you know, Thielen comes out and saying, I don't have a quarterback. And Cousins said, it's all my fault that they had him on the show and they made up. And Cousins then throws for, and everyone's saying Cousins has the worst contract because he gets guaranteed $35 million a year and he never wins a big game. But he threw for 36 yards, had two touchdowns, no interceptions. And Thielen had seven catches, 130 yards. Uh, look, Minnesota, with their defense and Delvin Cook running, they, they will figure this out. Like, for everyone who wants to write Minnesota off and write Kirk Cousins off, I would not be surprised if they're in, like, the NFC championship game. I don't think they're going to go to the Super Bowl, but I think they're going to make the playoffs. Uh, they're, they're just, their defense is just that good. And Cousins just had some bad games. And, but they, I like their running backs. I like their wide receivers. They're going to figure it out and do well. No, I, I agree with you here, and, and it's exactly that. Like you said, they play defense, they can run the ball, and they've got dynamic players on the outside. They're going to win games. Everyone can look at the stats. Oh, Kirk Cousins has only thrown X amount of passes. Well, he threw 10 passes week one, and they won. So that's, you know, things like that are going to skew the numbers a little bit, but a win's a win. Tonight, Ira, I think this is a tough pick. I would take the home team regardless in Cleveland versus San Francisco. So I'm going to go with San Fran tonight at home. What do you think? I'm, I'm a believer in Cleveland. I'm, I might be the only one. I think they're going to figure it out. I, I, I watched. I was at San Francisco for the last game. Now, remember, the Browns, Browns beat the Ravens last week looking you know, like they got their act together. The 49ers, I was at that game, it seemed like a month ago, beat the uh, Steelers because they had a bye. Um, each quarterback, uh, Baker's four touchdowns, six interceptions in the year. Jimmy G, five touchdowns, four interceptions on the year. I mean, their offense has been a little in both inconsistent. I'm not sold on San Francisco. I am starting to get sold on Cleveland. I'm going to predict Cleveland wins this game. But if San Francisco wins this, they go up 4-0. Uh, that's, I mean, you know, there's only, only two undefeated teams in the league with, with, with uh, New England. So a great start. I mean, San Francisco's franchise, uh, this is, uh, this is like with their stadium and everything. This, this is a big game in San Francisco. I mean, this, they are really counting this. And also, the one thing is that the owners of San Francisco, we talked about, were all from Youngstown. So when Cleveland plays there, they all have the ties to Cleveland, that area, Youngstown, Ohio. So that, that connection. And now Bob Stoops actually is from Youngstown, too. We're going to talk about, we talk about Youngstown a lot on our show. We've had Kelly Pavlik, Ray Boo Mancini, now Bob Stoops uh, from Youngstown. So. Ira, before we wrap this up, I know uh, you you watched your boy Triple G fight Saturday night, and this was a good one. Oh yeah, it was it was a great fight against Sergey Demarca, uh, and he Triple G. It was one of those fights again. We've had back to back very with Errol Spence and uh, Errol Spence and Sean Porter. It was one of these fights. The end of the fight, it could have gone either way. Uh, Twelve rounds. Great boxing. It was ruled. It was this was actually uh, uh, 115, 112, 115, 112. It was a majority, you know, a decision. But by it was like you know, seven rounds to five. Uh, and really, the difference was Triple G had a knockdown in that first round. But uh, great fight. I mean, it was it was it was it was just exciting. I mean, two back to back weeks. And unfortunately, there's a lot of football on. So people are missing these fights. But two back to back weeks of some really really uh, uh, great fights. We are out of time. Listen up. Bob Stoops is coming up here on Iron Sports. On behalf of Ira, I'm Mike. Let's talk next Monday night. It's Iron Sports. Thanks a lot for coming on Ira Sports. I appreciate it. We're down here in West Palm Beach. I know you've had good memories of of Florida. Uh, and so, oh, yeah. but <laughs> but I just wanted to bring the beginning the interview talking about Youngstown, Ohio, where you grew up. We've had Boom Boom Mancini on our show, Kelly Pavlik. Uh, I've been to Youngstown many times. My best friend in law school went there. Talk about, in your book, No Excuses, you really uh, hit on the impact that Youngstown and growing up there had on the rest of your life and coaching. Yeah, it's just a very unique place, uh, you know, uh, just very uh, tight, tight. Uh, uh, close uh, family, you know, ties uh, to neighborhood ties. Uh, you grow up in a in a neighborhood. Uh, streets we grew up on, just you know, single uh, single road driveways with the detached single garage behind the house, and you know, you just um, my my neighborhood buddies. Most of them to this day are my best best friends, 
And uh, it's just very tight-knit, uh, close, very ethnic, ethnic, you know. So I tell a bunch of stories in the book how just, you know, there'd be eight, ten guys that all of us on the same block, we'd take our street and we'd walk two, three streets over and we'd play the other street, uh, their group of guys. And whether it be, you know, tackle football or basketball, whatever it might be, you know, it's just uh, very, very unique in in, uh, in in how you grow up. It's almost like you see those old time movies of of you know, here's our gang of guys going over, you know, playing like I said, playing tackle football to this, you know, against the other street. And uh, I don't know, it's just very, very different, but uh, but you know, very good too. Great, great way to grow up. And then you talk in your book about, you mentioned about, you spend a lot of time talking about the impact your dad had, being the son of a coach, um, and how you grew up, and your brothers grew up in a house where he's watching film all the time, and then just to, how he coached the game. I mean, even when you were in Oklahoma, you're talking about how you would make sure the locker room was clean, because he would always make sure his locker room was clean, and walk through and clean the towels up. And just talk a little about the impact your father had on you in terms of your coaching career. Yeah, he, he was never you know, tried to force anything on us, but with him, we were around sports all the time. And, uh, you know, he, not only was he a football coach at the high school level, he also was the head baseball coach. He played baseball the entire, my entire life growing up, he played in the double A leagues and then, and then would play as he got older, played fast pitch softball. So we were always allowed to go with him. We would be the bat boy uh, you know, and we in the locker room in the fall, being around the team, you know, in football, on the diamond in baseball. And then in the winter, he inter- refereed intramural basketball games at the school. So we'd be at the gym all, all morning with him. So point being, we were around sports all the time. He, he, without ever forcing anything on us, it's just what we were used to, you know. And uh, so anyway, and he, he would mop the floor after the high school football games. He would he would get all the uniforms, put them in the, in the washer. Um, and he'd have different loads. It can only hold so much. Uh, but then he then he he'd pick up the locker room, mop the floor, and he didn't have to do that. He was the senior assistant coach with the head coach, but it was his way of humbling himself. Um, he he did it. We we always we had a very successful team there, and he would always clean up. And uh, so uh, you know what you referenced, I. I wouldn't intentionally go through our locker room and pick up some paper, pick up a towel, put it away, whatever, just to show my players, you know, you're never above any of this, you know, to, to uh, you know, chip in and help out a little bit. And um, then I tell the story of I was I was ready to leave Iowa, you know, after my first semester. I, I wanted to leave. It was too much of a cultural shock leaving Youngstown, a steel mill town, and being out in the middle of Iowa. And I, I just bad team. We I just didn't like it. And I went home and I expressed that one too many times. And finally, my dad looked at me and he gave me some choice words and a you know a lot of tough love. And bottom line was I was going back. He didn't feel I had given it enough of a chance, and he didn't want to hear it. And um, so I went back. And fortunately, I went back and end up you know starting at safety the next four years. And then stayed at Iowa another five years coaching with Hayden Fry and that great coaching staff. So, of course, you know, my, my path as a head coach, and surely I would never have been the head coach at Oklahoma had I quit and left Iowa at the time. So, sure, my dad, you know, bottom line, gave me some good, tough love, and it went a long way. And you got, and you were very fortunate to go to Iowa and be surrounded by uh, Alvarez, Snyder, Ferenc, yourself. I mean, Hall of Famers all over them. He's college football Hall of Famers. What was it like being you know, the great? Some of the greatest minds in college football were there, just as assistant coaches uh, with you, uh, coaching this team. And you turned around the program. I when you went to Iowa as a player, it was one of the worst teams in the Big Ten. And when you left, you're going to the Rose Bowl. And the same thing when you went to Kansas State and uh, and and to Oklahoma. So, what did you learn at Iowa in terms about turning a program around and building it up? Yeah, I, I learned a great deal, as you said. Uh... Hayden Fry's my head coach, and then my assistant coaches are Bill Snyder, Barry Alvarez, uh, Kirk Ferentz, um, Dan McCarney. You know, all those guys have gone on and become great head coaches. Uh, so they were my mentors 
and really uh, helped helped me as a young assistant coach, as a graduate assistant, and then a volunteer assistant. And, um, you know, and and you're right. Uh, at the time, we had had like 17, 18 years of losing seasons at Iowa. In my junior year, we go to the Rose Bowl. You know, we Big Ten uh, champs and go to the Rose Bowl. And my senior year, we play in the Peach Bowl. And you know, they all turned it around. And and uh, you know, and Iowa's gone on since then and has had a lot of great success. So, uh, just from Coach Fry, what I learned, uh, just the swagger and uh, you know, and the mental toughness. And uh, he, he he was so great at making you feel maybe, you know, better than you were. And he just had a great way of doing that. And then he hired great coaches. And I, I learned that as well, to be a head coach. you got to surround yourself with great people. The one thing I took from your book, and I, I've read so many coaches' books, and we're talking to Coach Bob Stoops, uh, the book No Excuses, which is a tremendous, tremendous book to read. It must read. But so I think you went into detail about your decisions on what jobs to take and the jobs you didn't take. And I just loved reading that because I have a lot of friends in coaching, and it's, it's you're always debating back and forth. And, and sometimes you have a split second. And you don't, It's not like one of these decisions you have forever to make. You, you have like 30 seconds, or should I take this? Should I interview with a job? And you mentioned when you were at Kansas State, uh, Notre Dame, and, and Coach Holtz wanted you to go there to be assistant, but you felt it was best just to stay at Kansas State. And then when you're in Florida, you were making the decision whether to go to, you know, made, when you finally made decision to Kansas State to go somewhere, you went to Florida and then making the decision from Florida to go either to Oklahoma or Iowa. Talk about the, you know, you seem to make always the right decisions. <laughs> so what, in terms of what, when you're thinking, what was your philosophy in making these coaching moves? Well, I, I think as much as anything to trust, you know, no one can tell you. I think too many times people seek the counsel of other people too much uh, because no, everyone's life is different. And I, I wasn't real interested in what someone else thought I ought to do. Um, I always just trusted my own uh, feelings, gut, my, you know, my own instincts of what was right for myself and my family. Uh, because as soon as you start to seek the counsel of others on those decisions, well, they're living a different life. It, 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 it doesn't, you know, it doesn't mean it's right for you. So, so in the end, uh, you know, I detail it like the, you know, the when I was assistant at Kansas State and Notre Dame was asking about going there to be an assistant coach. I, I was making the defensive calls at Kansas State, and I felt I was getting great experience doing that. Had I gone to Notre Dame, I wasn't going to be doing that. I didn't have control of the calls and what we were doing, and I didn't like that. You know, at the end of the, when it all came down to it, that was the biggest reason. I'm like, I'm, I'm in control of what we're calling and putting on the field, and so why, why, you know, step back? And then, uh, you know, when I left Kansas State, I had been there seven years, and we had brought the program up, and my wife. You know, we loved it. I, I wasn't looking to leave. I didn't even know Florida had a job opening, and Coach Spurrier called me, and then, uh, you know, it started to add up to me. And even my wife said, "Well, Bobby, if you don't take this job, you're you need your head examined. What what else? Where when are you ever going to leave? Then you know." And she had a good point. Like you know what you're. And when I say I don't seek the counsel of anyone other than my wife, you know, your your wife always knows you better than anyone does, and. And she was right. It was the right time to leave. It was the right move. And I loved my time at Florida. Of course, I went to Florida. We won the national championship in the 96, or my first year there. But I had been brought in with Coach Spurrier to a great team. So I, I was really lucky there. Uh, so anyhow, I just have trusted my own instincts and trusted my wife's instincts as well uh, along the way on what fit me and what, what didn't. And then you're in terms of coaching styles, you go to Bill Snyder at Kansas State. Very, you're in the, the, the work, you're in there at 7 a.m. You don't leave till 11 p.m. It's a grind all the time. And then you go to Spurrier and you said, like, one time he said, let's go to the beach and you're soaking in the water. And he said, do you think Phil Former is out in the, uh, in the, in the, in the ocean right now? And it was like a much more relaxed coaching style. Very effective. Of course, Coach Spurrier is a legend of all, of all legends. But talk about going from Snyder to Spurrier, but also how that when you went to Oklahoma, you embraced more the Spurrier style of coaching more than the, the Snyder even the Hayden Fry style. Yeah, you couldn't get two people polar opposites than, you know, Coach Snyder and Coach Spurrier. There's, and it's just how they're built and how they, you know, they are as people. They're just 
they're just polar, you know, opposites in so many ways, and, and even how they work is what you had just described. And I, I was just my, more of my natural state. I'm much more like Coach Spurrier. That's just how I am and how I'm built. And um, so I did. I, I virtually copied, you know, or emulated everything we were doing in Florida here at Oklahoma. And, uh, you know, so, yeah, there, I tell the story of my first year at Florida when I don't, you know, it's, it's only the second or third game. We're playing Tennessee. We're both ranked in the top five. It's a huge game. Peyton Manning against Danny Warfel, and and we had an off week before the game. And and I'm with you know Coach Spurrier says Bobby, we're, you get Carol. We're gonna you're gonna go over with Jerry and I. We're gonna go to the beach uh, the, on the off weekend. Uh, you know Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I'm like okay. You know I'm like seriously. We're gonna go to the beach with this game coming up, and and uh, we're out there floating around in the water and uh, riding waves, you know, you know, body surfing and, and boogie boarding. And he says, and he looks over at me, he says, you know, Bobby, he says, you think Phil Fulmer's in the ocean today? I said, no, I'm sure he's not. I said, I could hardly believe I'm in the ocean today right now. <laughs> so, but uh, that was just him. He, he had a confident way and he believed in working smart and effective as opposed to just counting up your hours. You know, and he, it's worked well for him through the years. You know, he's, he, he's a great coach. And, uh, and I tried to do the same thing. I didn't waste time. Uh, if I felt our work was complete and done, and then go home. You know, that, that was good enough for the day. So you go to Oklahoma, and in it, the program, people think now is Oklahoma this great program. But when you took over Oklahoma, it was a disaster. You were working out of a trailer, um, and they and they had losing records after losing records. And you really changed the culture of, of the. You brought the culture back because you brought the legends back to the program. Uh, talk for a second about turning Oklahoma and taking this great uh, team and great tradition and bringing it back and, and winning the national championship and playing for three national championships in six years. Yeah, that's why I wrote the book I, because I've, I'm asked so so often how did we do that and I'm like I, I can't tell you how we did it in a five minute conversation you know it's but I, it began with really our players self image was really destroyed after so many down years um, they just were really uh, almost embarrassed you know how they felt and I started by rebuilding their self image I, I constantly would put up and show the championship teams of Coach Switzer and how they played. I'd show all these different All-Americans, the Joe Washingtons, the Brian Bosworths, the, all the different great players. And I constantly hammered home, this is what we are supposed to be. This is who we are. This is our program. This is how we play, on and on and on. And little by little, they started to identify with it. And really had an attitude that they were sick and tired of getting kicked around and they were going to do something about it. And, and I, and I promised them. And, and as we went, I kept saying, you know, cause I had just come from Florida. So I had some credibility of winning and championships that we're going to work hard enough to, to know that we deserve to win. Cause I, I think there's something in you too, that knows, do I really deserve to, to have success? and how I'm working and what I'm doing. And I convinced them that we're working in a way that you need to expect to win and deserve to win. And so little by little, we rebuilt their, their psyche and, and uh, you know, their, their expectations started to rise. And sure enough, you know, the first year I, we had a benchmark where we beat the defending Big 12 champs, who was Texas A&M, at our place at homecoming. 51 to 6 and then we had turned it they had been kicking the heck out of us and now we beat the heck out of them and I, I i said this is the turning point you know where we really started to to step over the edge and and start to become a really winning team and and of course we went 13 and 0 and won the national championship then the following year so coach we're talking to coach bob stoops the author of the book no excuses um and one final question in terms of so many of the programs at College Football you see, they have trouble with succession where either a coach stays on too long or even when a coach leaves, they can't find it. And people talk about, oh, remember when the program used to be great? And we could just go through. And even when it works with the Jimbo Fisher and the Bobby Bowden, it's there's that tension between the new coach coming in. 
But you're, you should write a book. Your next book should be on how to be a succession. You left Lincoln Riley, uh, Heisman Trophy winning quarterbacks, two of them, and a tremendous program. And talk about that in terms of your willingness to walk away and give your successor and actually pick your successor and leave the Oklahoma, tri- just the you know, keep going. I've never seen it. It's probably the most seamless transition ever in college coaching. Well, I, I, I had felt complete after 18 years. You know, there was nothing negative whatsoever when I stepped out. It was all positive is the reason I did it. I, I, had, I had run my course. Uh, I was complete in what I was to do at Oklahoma. And I didn't want to miss the right time. I knew I had the right guy that would continue to push the program forward and Lincoln Riley. I knew I had a mature and uh, experienced team that could handle the transition well. In fact, I talk about it in there in the team meeting when their players are finding out this is going to happen. It, you could hear a pin drop at first, and even, you know, they had this feeling that something was wrong. And then I finally, I, I smiled at them, and I said, guys, this is all good. I go, I don't win. I go, you guys are the ones that win the games. You're, not, you're the one making the plays. I said, look around. You're all still here. You're all going to be the ones that play and win again. I said, look around. All your coaches are here. Sad about, it. and then they realize that's okay. You know, coach is right. He he wants this, and so you know they initially think something's wrong. You know, and I'm like, nothing's wrong. It's perfect. And and then they they all smiled, stood up, gave me a standing ovation, gave me you know came up, started coming up, giving me hugs, and it's like this is okay. And uh, so I, it was just the right time. I didn't want to miss the right time, and um, you know, and and it worked out that way. And like, and I have a great relationship. He knows. He can bounce anything off of me uh, that, you know, whatsoever with all the experience I have. He does once in a while. Not that he needs it, but he, he you know, I'm thinking this way. What do you think? And he, he wants my, you know, wants to know what I think, you know, here and there on certain situations. And and uh, so, heck, I'll even sit in a quarterback meeting once or twice a week just so I could. Now, I never say a word, but it's just so for my own, you know, for my own something to do. And I like to know what plan is what, what can I look for on Saturday since I'm not at practice all the time you know so anyway we've got a great relationship and you know he's going he's to continue to really you know push the program forward in a great way and uh, he's you know he's doing a great job and talk uh, just briefly about your next venture. You're the new uh, general manager and coach of the Dallas Renegades in the inaugural XFL. Uh, that'll be starting next year. Um, that's a, it's a new a new adventure for you, something different. But uh, you, from what I've heard with interviews, you're very excited about this. Yeah, it's going to be fun, exciting football. We're going to work out of the Global Life Park, uh, which is where the Texas Rangers play right now. Games will start uh, a weekend after the Super Bowl, 10-week schedule with a playoff game and a championship after that. So February, March, and April. So it's uh, we've got you know, great uh, national broadcast TV uh, contracts in place with uh, ESPN, ABC, and Fox. Uh, so so we're, in a, we're in a great position. I think it's going to be really good. Thanks. I know your time is tight, so thank you very much, Coach, for coming on the show. Uh, his book is No Excuses, The Making of a Head Coach. It's the best coaching book I've ever read, and I suggest everyone go to, you can buy it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everything, or online. It was excellent. Thanks a lot for coming on, Coach. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Have a great day.